Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of conversations with spiritually awakening people. We've done over 660 of them now. If this is new to you and you'd like to check out previous ones, go to batgap.com and look under the past interviews menu. That's the best way to do it because they're well organized there. Or you can just cruise around on the YouTube channel. This program is made possible through the support of appreciative listeners and viewers. So if you appreciate it and would like to help support it, there are PayPal buttons on the site and there's a page which explains some alternatives to PayPal. And if you feel like it, subscribe to the channel. We're approaching 100,000 subscribers now. It'd be fun to hit that mark for what it's worth. My guest today is Jessica Nathanson. I first became aware of Jessica a few months ago when our mutual friend Tim Freak brought her to my attention and um, sent me a link to a couple of conversations he had had with her about Neo-Advaita and the effect that that indulgence in that had had on her life. That's what we're going to talk about today, mostly. Jessica is originally from Connecticut, where I'm from. We actually used to ski at the same ski area, but I did that before she was born. Broke my collarbone there one time. She now lives in Tel Aviv. I don't know yes. if you want to explain why or whatever, but it's not so relevant to our conversation, but you can if you want. No, I just uh, fell in love with it a long time ago, but I mm-hmm. guess I could also mention that uh, the word Israel does mean one who struggles with God, so there may be some additional meaning there. Interesting. That's a whole conversation. Why would one struggle with God? Or can one be one with God and end the struggle? I listened to all the videos on your YouTube channel in addition to your conversations with Tim. And um, one place that I thought may be good to start, I heard you mention in one of your interviews with somebody that as a young girl, you used to slip into state of unboundedness or some kind of expansive awareness or something. And you didn't know what it was and it scared you and you called it what? The great terrible or something like that. Oh, it was the bad thought. The bad thought, right. I find that interesting because a lot of the people I interview who have later blossomed spiritually had something going on when they were kids, and Mm -hmm. then usually they'd lost it and then did whatever they did for a decade or so, you know, going through the teenage years, and then it started to open up again. I guess the reason I consider that significant is that And this is perhaps a point we'll cover in our conversation that I think there's a vast expanse of spiritual development. You know, you could think of a spectrum. I don't know if anyone's ever reached the end of it. I think when we come into this life, we pick up on whatever level of evolution we had achieved in the previous one, my particular orientation, and we carry on from there. So, you know, it would stand to reason that sometimes that people who have profound experiences as a kid might have come in with some spiritual background under their belts, you know, and and then they, they start experiencing things related to that and then gain an interest in spirituality a little bit later. So do you want to talk any more about that bad thought or whatever you just called it? Yeah, you jumped right into the deep end. I'm actually yeah. surprised that that's what you're starting with, because I always wonder if, if I should go there or not. Oh, I um, always like to jump into the deep end, as long as there's water. I don't know if there is. No, it's probably bottomless. So that was 
pretty bizarre. I would say like around the age of seven, I started having these sudden panic attacks because it was really based on this opening of infinity. But it was a lot of it was conceptual. It was like, oh, my God, the endlessness of, you know, after death, this non-existence is infinite. But it also came with uh, a derealization because somehow, and it's funny because that's, that's relates to um, my process now was that in that grand context of infinity, what's here now became almost so unreal. Like, how can this be real? It's this, such a tiny blip and everything became somehow not real or less real. And it was also came with this sense of just the utter absurdity of existence, just how can anything be? But that would lead to panic attacks and depersonalization, derealization, but it certainly wasn't experienced as spiritual. Um, it wasn't something I enjoyed. And it became something that I actually developed a somewhat of a OCD, a mental OCD around trying to stave off the thought of that, that kind of felt like it was always trying to creep in. So it is really fascinating to consider how that relates to what ended up unfolding later. I used to have something like that when I was a kid too, but it was usually when I had a high fever, if I got the measles or something. And I would sit in bed and I would have this experience of great vastness and great mm -hmm. tininess. And it was almost like both at once, you know, and it's funny because there's a line in the Upanishad, Brahman is greater than the greatest and smaller than the smallest. But the, that was kind of the experience. Also, sometimes great heaviness and great lightness. And I just sit there and contemplate the experience in my feverish state. But I found it kind of interesting. I think we all have access to vastness or unboundedness. And that's, in a way, what people are looking for when they pursue a spiritual path. I have a friend who's undergoing a very beautiful awakening these days. And it's been really scary for her for a while, not so much anymore. She's getting through it. But if she were driving and she looked at the sky, she would just zoom out into vastness. And she was afraid she wasn't going to be able to drive. And she was afraid she wasn't going to be able to take care of her son and things like that. And I just kept reassuring her and talking her through it. And yeah. she's doing okay now. But a lot of people report a fear of this experience because there's a dissolution of the sense of individuation, sense of self. There's a dark side to that and a light side to that. And I think we're going to get into that during our conversation. Yeah, we definitely are. And just one thing about that was, I may have lost my train of thought. No, one of the things about it was that the sense of dissolution didn't really come until the kind of the awakening journey. I would say it was more derealization than anything of everyone else. What do you mean derealization of everyone else? Rather than me not existing, it was more like I'm here, but everyone else doesn't have a reality, which is interesting because that will definitely come up later. And that was something that the seven-year-old Jessica was contemplating? Yeah, I was. I was running down the hallway panicking and my parents were like, what the fuck is going on? They said that to you? No, they didn't say that. No, they were thinking it. And they, <laughs> then they called it the bad thought. I'm like, right. they probably should have sent me to psychotherapy, but I didn't want to go. But the, the other thing that I think is, is funny is that when I kind of went into the spiritual emergency, I was reading about depersonalization because I was experiencing that again. And one person had said, on the one hand, depersonalization is is awful. But on the other side, like, way to go. You already made it. 
Yeah. As with a lot of things, there's a paradox. We'll get into that a lot in our discussion. There are things which are perfectly lovely, but which become misinterpreted or overemphasized or emphasized to the exclusion of everything else. And and then it becomes a, a nightmare. I think one of our overall themes today will be to talk about the comprehensiveness of genuine spiritual awakening, the inclusiveness of all levels of reality, all paradoxical considerations. That is very well said. Thank you. So then that was when you were seven. And obviously, you know, you went through your teenage years, you skied at Powder Ridge and did this and did that. (laughs) When did you actually get interested in spirituality? In my 20s was when it began. And I think it, it began like it does for a lot of people with that disillusionment with there being something that we can acquire, some perfect set of circumstances that will promise us that lasting fulfillment and satisfaction and really just waking up to the hungry ghost syndrome that was very strong in me and then started to see it everywhere. Hungry ghost syndrome meaning like? The grasping for things and getting them, but never being full. You know, you can get as much as you can, but it's never enough. So that became very apparent to me and that it was strong in me. But also this goes pretty well along with the what we were talking about in my childhood is that I've been lucky enough to inherit something called <laughs> pure OOCD and not just that, but it's called existential pure OOCD. Of course, you know, clinical things are, are annoying, but it is a pretty bizarre niche thing where the mental ruminations that you have are intrusive thoughts about the nature of reality, death and existence, and developing other habits of thought to counteract those habits of thought. So you can kind of imagine the madness in my brain that it could occur. And I wanted to share a, I mean, it's not funny, but an interesting story of how things began. It began in the Barnes and Noble in Union Square, and I'm kind of looking at the sea of self-help books, and this strange hooded figure comes over, a guy in a hoodie, and just hands me the book, The Untethered Soul by Michael Singer, and says, this will change your life, and it absolutely did, for better and for worse. So that was the initiatory moment. Ah, interesting. And so how did it change your life? It leads to the ordeal that I've been through that leads me to where I'm at now, but essentially led me into an ego death path and the path of, let's say, divine suicide that, as you said before, it's this paradox, double-edged sword that freed me. And what freed me ended up also trapping me in another way. But that was really the, the beginning of discovering, you know, that revelation that many of us have when we realize that so much of our suffering comes from the stories in our head and the voices in our head and that it's a self-made prison. But it also began sort of the planting of the seeds of you're not really real, that who you think you are is is a fiction. And that realizing that is the key to liberation and this idea between a real self and a, and a false self had begun to take form. Yeah. Which again, everything you say is like, okay, that's good. And yet I can see how that could be bad if it's spun the wrong way. Did you start some kind of actual practice of meditation or something? Or were you mainly just reading books about these things? Well, I don't think I started meditation until after the next book, which was The Power of Now, which is what really started 
creating this huge shift because it it was really more of that kind of the ego that what I am is this false ego and that the ego is responsible for all my suffering that transcendence and liberation comes from let's say what he considered to be transcending the ego which is more like getting rid of it to some extent but what that book did was it really opened me up to space the space between things and starting to become more acutely aware of space and spaciousness. And then I started, I think around that time, I probably started meditating, but it was never really intense meditation. It was just kind of dipping my toes into it. And as you began these explorations, initially, did you feel like they were improving your life, making you happier, making you more productive? Absolutely not more productive, (laughs) Uh but definitely free. Like it's that first taste of what we think is liberation from the, what had felt like the prison of mind. We all have some overthinking patterns, but I think that the more that somebody feels like their mind is a prison, the more cathartic that sudden kind of awakening beyond thought and self is. And so for me, it was just cataclysmic. When I actually had that first, what people say, and I would have said as my awakening, which was that big ego drop of I've disappeared and everything else is still here. I've disappeared and become everything. And that collapsing of perceiver and perceived, that was that big moment of where you throw your head back with laughter of, oh my God, I thought that I was real. Jessica never really ever existed and she doesn't. And just the kind of catharsis of that at this moment being a positive thing, a total transformative, liberating feeling. Did you shift into that and it was abiding, like, you know, just walked around all day with that realization, whether or not you thought about it, that was the way you perceived life? No, (laughs) absolutely not. It was more of intermittent. And I would say that beginning to meditate and having meditation be leading to ego dissolution and, you know, kind of dissolving into the silence and the spaciousness more kind of reconfirmed the cognitive understanding of that, but definitely was leading to episodes of this, the absence of me. People like Locke Kelly talk about many small glimpses, many times. There were a lot of glimpses, but there were also longer experiences of that that were accumulating. Did the glimpses tend to be triggered just by the intellectual contemplation of these ideas? Or was it more like meditation triggered them? It's hard to say, because it definitely was, you know, when walking around, it wasn't just the inner dissolution was different than that experience of walking around and then suddenly being like this 360 walking hole, (laughs) hole, not W-H, but H-O-L-E. That feels important to clarify. I don't remember exactly how it would happen. I think it probably was a combination of of mental prompts and more of an intuitive feeling my way to that. But it's hard for me to remember now. I'm sure that everyone listening to this has sat around and had philosophical conversations with friends possibly aided by a little marijuana or something. I used or to do that. more strong. <laughs> or something, yeah. But it's interesting how just putting your attention on this stuff and dwelling on it can shift your awareness to a great extent. 
it's a good way of enhancing any high, even if you're not taking anything. <laughs> I experience it when I do one of these interviews. I just feel high as a kite by the end of it. And when exactly. I used to teach meditation, I'd give a lecture and I just feel tremendous by the yeah. end of it, just because yeah. of focusing deeply on this topic. And I think that is a hint as to why jnana yoga is said to be a path, that ultimately it's the intellectual discernment between the finest impulses of creation and the absolute that slides one into final realization. You said, and I'm not going to pronounce it right, the jnana yoga. I had understood that that is self-inquiry. Yeah, self-inquiry is a, is a, definitely an aspect of it. And it's really the main feature of Advaita Vedanta. But, might as well say this now, traditional Vedanta doesn't just say, oh, you're already that or you don't exist. It says that kind of stuff. But part of the emphasis, if you consider it as a serious path and devote your life to it, is you have to go through all kinds of preparation before you're considered qualified to actually use intellectual inquiry alone as your path. There could be karma yoga and bhakti yoga and meditation and and all kinds of things. And I I sent you a quote from Nisargadatta. It'd be a good chance to read it here. He said, you seem to want instant insight, forgetting that insight is always preceded by a long preparation. The fruit falls suddenly, but the ripening takes time. So that was from the Sargadatta Maharaj. Yeah, a beautiful one. You know, it's so long ago and so many things have happened since then internally that it's hard to remember the details. But self-inquiry in Ramana Maharshi's self-inquiry was definitely a, a part of this, was that direct realization. I think of that as like the big guns, which makes sense because that was a higher teaching that wasn't, you didn't just give that out to anyone. It wasn't indiscriminate, let's say. And that's one of my biggest concerns about the appropriations of that in the West, because it eliminates all of that. And there's no consideration for who you're giving this to and and what their state is and level of preparedness, if you would say, because I don't think that they really consider that a necessity, let's say, in new advice. Right. I mean, Jesus said, don't pour new wine into old wineskins. In other words, the vehicle through which this realization has to happen needs to be made anew, needs to be purified strengthened before this kind of knowledge can really be lived in any clear and sustaining way. One of the interesting things about what you're saying, and for one, I won't go into it now, but I do have some, um, what's the word? The concept of purity and purification is something that I've come to have some inner conflict with. But what I was going to say was, on one hand, those safeguards were in place to help make sure that it would be more of an abiding thing. But I feel that probably part of it was their understanding that you needed a health developed ego before trying to collapse that ego. And the thing that's happening now, which is so kind of obvious at this point, is that people that are really drawn to this, a lot of these people don't have that. They don't have a fully developed ego. I think it doesn't even develop until your late 20s. They don't have that and actually suffer from a lot of what comes with that, you know, not having a healthy sense of individuation. Who was it that said you have to be somebody before you can be nobody? Remember that? Jeff Foster. Was it Jeff or was it Ken Wilber? (laughs) I don't know, somebody. But you make a good point, which is that it takes a lot of strength to sustain the experience of unbounded awareness. And 
if the mind-body system is full of some scars, full of deep impressions, it is really not a fit vehicle for sustaining that experience. And if the experience dawns prematurely, it can cause serious problems. Right. That's kind of what I would emphasize for myself is the what you said at the end is that aside from it not leading to being able to abide in it, for example, that it's a question of whether this is actually going to serve you or not, if it's going to exacerbate your current suffering and create new forms of it for people where what they need is, I mean, you could argue about that, but in my perspective, what many people need, for example, is not more boundlessness or dissolution of boundaries, they need to actually learn to have stronger boundaries that are healthy. I know that I didn't really have that. And so many of us these days with, you know, everything we're understanding about relational trauma, and how a lot of people don't develop that sense of individuation and have a lot of trouble with boundaries and enmeshment. I think now we're really seeing how important that is. So what happened to you then? You got into all this stuff. Earlier on, I said, did it improve your life? You said, no, it definitely didn't improve my life. Even initially, it sounds like in the early stages, it had a deleterious influence on your life in some respect. I don't think I said I didn't improve it. I think you would ask if it made me more productive. That's what I said, yeah. So I don't think it made me more productive. Is that Um, because the world seemed meaningless and you didn't feel like it was worth trying to do anything? Well, kind of a crux of it was that we're, you know, need to let go of that productivity. We need to let go of aspirations and goals and and even desire. So naturally, there's first kind of that, and I will be comfortable calling it an indoctrination in the beginning, that conceptually feeling ashamed of those drives or being taught that those drives will only lead to suffering. In the beginning, it wasn't so demotivating, but it's something that led me later down, probably a couple years later, that led to that I really did lose a great portion of desire and motivation because I, you know, I got into those places where there is no doer and there's nothing to say, there's nothing left to do. And people think of that as like, oh, how wonderful. But again, it has its dark side when you feel like this radical contentment with the moment, but that does dry up the motivation to go out and listen to music or spend time with people. We always hear about the bench, all of these like, yeah, there's always a bench that someone sat on for a long time. It was kind of funny to me where I was sitting on a bench in a park and it was like, I could just sit on this bench forever and just be a witness of the passing show. And this kind of an awe that's not, Someone said a non-participatory awe, which I really liked. So yeah, I guess that's my long answer to the question. That's good. I was fortunate in a way because I had a teacher, Margie Mahesh Yogi, which people know, who always emphasized having motivations, having goals, having aspirations, go and get a college degree, you know, get a good job and do this, do that. Don't just sit and meditate all the time. And his attitude was that one could live 200% of life, 100% inner spiritual and 100% outer material, and that there was no conflict between the two. But I think what a lot of these more contemporary Advaita teachers have been doing is taking teachings or perspectives that might be appropriate for a recluse and advocating them universally. 
to audiences who are 99 point something percent not recluses by nature. And yeah. it just takes the wind out of your sails and you lose motivation, that's, I guess. That's really well said and something that I am so aware of now in understanding how dangerous this stuff can be is that it's really not compatible with the lives that most people are living when they get involved with things like Neo Advaita. And most of us are going through immense suffering. So we reach for this and the promise that we're being given here. One of the things that I thought that I would want to touch on is the way that somebody who's not a recluse, somebody who's a householder, the effect that this has on other people in the house, the effect that that has on people around you. And of course, when you're in a monastery or you become a wandering ascetic, you don't need to worry about that. But one of the things that I've become really aware of more recently is how these renunciate paths for householders in the West really deeply harms families. It's an unpopular truth that people don't talk about very much. I've met two parents who share that their ego death and detachment path made them no longer really able to feel empathy for their children and the suffering they were going through and to not be emotionally available for them will not be there, of course, and just how tragic that was and the impact that had on their children. And one of them actually coming to a point where he was saying that I can't continue to be a dad and not be Richard. He could either pursue this dissolution path or be a dad that he couldn't do one or the other. And it actually brought him to the point of wanting to kill himself. Yeah. So that's sad. Like you said to me in an email, you said, I think some of these traditional teachers like Ramana would roll in their graves if they heard what's being <laughs> they would. <laughs> some of these examples. I guess the reason we have to use the term Neo Advaita is that we don't want to give Advaita a bad name or exactly. the, the whole tradition associated with it. There are verses in the Bhagavad Gita, for instance, which talk about the uninvolved nature of the self and how in a certain state, one has the sense that I do not act at all. But then there are also verses advocating dynamic action and taking responsibility and things like that. In fact, there's a great verse right. which, which says yoga is skill in action. This is going to make you more effective, not right. less so. That makes a lot of sense. This is not Advaita, but was reading a book the other day that was saying, he was like, Jesus didn't just sit there. No, he slept sh- around the Middle East for a few years. Exactly. <laughs> he, he did. Yeah, that is a huge thing. And I just wanted to add that with Advaita in the traditional Eastern liberation paths in their context, I no longer align with that notion of what leads to the end of suffering or what is ultimately true. But it doesn't feel dangerous to me that it exists there and that, you know, people could study this or look it up or go to India to find it. But the fact that it's now permeating self-help books, I mean, you have Neo Advaita on Oprah's bedside table. That becomes concerning. Yeah. We haven't quite gotten to this yet, but you've intimated to me that your life really took a dark turn and you know, he became a lot more dysfunctional than he have yet told us. I will definitely try to abbreviate it. One of the things that I realized, and I know that you have a lot of awareness about spiritual emergency, is that you lose or struggle to have a coherent, cohesive narrative of even what the hell has happened. So for me, it's taken many years to actually piece together and 
make sense of to be able to even tell people because it gets to this point where you're going in and out of self dissolution, that there's almost these two different experiences happening side by side. It starts out with what I think of as a honeymoon phase that people go through and at least in Neo-Advaita. And it's the stage that I call blissful nihilism, because what's happening is there's this great relief in having the sense that everything's a story and nothing really matters and nothing's really real, that suddenly oh my God, I don't have to care about the things that I care about because they're not actually real. They're not actually significant. And that's a huge burden lifted. And it feels like with such clarity that the things that cause me the most suffering aren't real. So it's that dramatic. For me, it felt like my secret superpower was that I could, and I think a lot of people describe it that way, I could be in painful situations. I could be there, but not there. I could expand out my awareness into this infinite open awareness and everything within that is just miniaturized. Like you're in an airplane and you look down and everything's little tiny Lego pieces. That's really what would happen to things of such grave importance. Like you're just laughing at how, oh my God, how did I think that that mattered? It's really not even real. So that's that kind of stage. And I want to be very balanced in saying that I was helped in a lot of ways and some ways that are still here today. For example, I became much, much more able to be alone for longer periods of time and not feel like I need a relationship or I need to be around others. I guess for a while that felt like this radical contentment and the undoing of a lot of unhealthy relationship habits and clinging and codependent type of stuff. But I will say I was also in psychotherapy at the time. It was a a non-dual influence therapist. So this is the liberation phase that feels like a positive liberation and an unburdening. Jeff Foster, for example, was one of the first people that really transformed things and someone who to this day I still very much love, but really related to him because he openly struggled with depression. His realization that he shared with people was that depression is caused by needing to uphold a somebody, needing to be a person. Not that you're acting as an inauthentic person, but that you are thinking that you're a person. So there was a really big awakening. I think he calls it dropping the burden of being somebody and become nobody, which now thinking about that is just like, oh my God. But at that time, that was such poetic wisdom. I also identified a lot with the narrative of divine suicide, which was something that I think I first picked up on through Eckhart Tolle. I don't think he's the one who said it, but I think he repurposed some version of the quote of die before you die to realize there's no such thing as death. There's a complexity to this that I think is important to bring awareness to because a lot of people are now realizing that a lot of people who come to these self-ego dissolution paths are people who grew up with perhaps a, a sense that they were the ones to blame for things or a harshness towards self and also a, a martyr syndrome. It's fascinating to me in my own psychology to realize how having grown up being influenced by a parent who had a martyr complex where the extent to which you'll sacrifice yourself for others is what you derive your worth from. There's a nobility to it. I'm not demonizing that because it has its benefits also, but 
it really spoke to me as very poetic in terms of one of the things that I wrestled with my whole life was this intense fear of death and like acute mortality terror that just kind of followed me and always made me feel very concerned with how I would exit life, wanting to secure a way to know that I won't age in terror and dread and face death in that state. The die before you die thing, it made sense. And then I experienced it. I experienced through that ego dissolution experience, the dissolution of the fear of death. Because if there is no one that fears death, there is no longer a fear of death. And also with that experience and also cognitive belief that who you really are is what was never born and never dies. So, you know, if you dissolve into that and basically re-identify with that, then there's a piece that kind of comes with that. I did want to bring in another piece to that, just because I, I know that some of these things are patterns that I've discovered in talking to a lot of people who were involved in Neo Advaita, that there's some things that are common. Some things that I want to bring awareness to say, like, this isn't just me. It's a common theme for a lot of people. Being a person that, let's say, family trauma dies with. So, for example, a way to make yourself like the ultimate sacrifice is like, I'm willing to be the one who falls on their own sword to be the end to the traumatic lineage and the ancestral traumas that were never processed and that very much were passed into me that it felt like this is what's going to do that. It's not for me to do it through like some psychological processing of stuff, but through making this ultimate sacrifice to die in this poetic, symbolic suicide way. So that became a, a big motivation for me there as well. The name of your website is The Glorious Both And, and I think that's a great name. I was thinking of that as you were talking, because... Mm -hmm. A lot of the things that Neo-Advaita people say are true, but they're not the only truth. For instance, one could say, of course you're a person. You're just not only a person. Of course you're a wave. You're just not only a wave. But you're not just the ocean without waves either. So there's the both and. But true Vedanta, true Advaita handles this nicely. It talks about the ultimate level which is impersonal and abstract and absolute and all that. And then it talks about the transactional level, the Abhaharika, where there are things you need to do and be concerned about, and like pay your taxes and do your job and raise your family and all that stuff. There's not any conflict between these. And I'll just say it again. I think that true spiritual evolution is a matter of expanding one's range of influence, one's range of experience, to incorporate the full range of reality from yeah. unmanifest to manifest and everything in between, all the subtler levels and so on. It's not a matter of somehow getting on to the unmanifest level and then just saying to heck with all the manifest stuff. Maybe it is if you're going to live in a cave in the Himalayas or something, right. but right. nobody listening to this is doing that. You own a computer, yeah. you must be a, a right. person in the world. There's Wi-Fi there. But I had also, and a lot of people get to that point, like my friend with the family, where it's like, I don't think I can live in modern society anymore. I'm going to need to go live in the woods or on a secluded island. What you were saying about the both and was exactly right, that I feel as well, that true spiritual 
awareness or consciousness expansion is opening to paradox as well as the transcendent include. So that was one of the things that I discovered was a, a mistake was this idea that transcendence has something to do with getting rid of what you're transcending. Whereas transcendence means transcending and then including that so that the ego, for example, is not non-existent, but it's not all of what you are. It's a part of a greater whole that you now know that you are. That makes all the difference, to be honest. Yeah, I often reference the Gita because there's so many great teachings in it, and I've read it a million times. But there's a part in the beginning where Arjuna says, I don't want to fight this battle. I'm just going to sit down. I'd rather live on alms than do this. And Krishna says, whence has come this paltry faint-heartedness at this untimely hour, you know? Stand up, fight, do your thing. And then there's another verse later on where Krishna's trying to resolve Arjuna's dilemma, which is how can he fight these respected elders and people? And Krishna says, well, okay, first be without the three gunas. That means transcend, go to the absolute. And then three verses later, he says, okay, now established in being, perform action. So the whole emphasis was that the transcendent experience augments effectiveness in activity. It doesn't enable you to hide from it. It's like going to the bank to get some money and then going to the market and being more effective in the market because you now have money. That's a good metaphor. But It, yeah, it enhances life. It should, anyway, if it's done it properly. It should. That has been very much my experience of eventually, you know, the coming down the mountain, which was the real hell for me, was taking the transcendent with you, taking that view and incorporating it into life in the valley. Further for me was realizing that the transcendent is this material world right here. But I feel like I should um, jump ahead a bit in my story to get to the scary stuff. So slowly over time, what starts to happen is that having these, and I will say that coming with people like Rupert Spira, the transparency, I think is a book was like the transparency of things that I had read and really started experiencing that and just seeing through everything. It got to this point where all content was transparent and then it would lose its significance and meaning. And I feel like as significant as that, it started to happen even with music. I'm a music lover and suddenly I'm listening to music and I'm like, but music is just this transparent thing that's not really having inherent reality. And that happened as well with language. We got to this point where language is this transparent construct and it got to a point at some point where I, I really struggled to even have conversations with people. Having conversations became tedious and exhausting. And part of that, I think, came because of this sense that language is transparent in a way, because it's a construct that it's not really real. All of which is true on some level, but it's not true on another level. These things are, well, not music, but language is a construct, but it's a real construct. But we don't have to go into the philosophical part of it. I'm having this newfound ability to be alone and and loving my solitude, but it starts to erode my ability to be with people. And so it starts to become really apparent in relationship and in interactions where I'm starting to really have this sense of this character of Jessica as this former illusion that's no longer real. And so there's just the character of me that I no longer really am. And so a lot of people talk about this is like you start to lose 
let's say in a conversation, you've seen through the habits and the quirks and the things that you laugh about and talk about as just conditioning. And it got to this point where it's like, I, I'm trying to remember like how I would have acted or how would Jessica respond to that? Or how would she carry herself? Because that wasn't really who I was anymore. And that becomes something that's obviously very disconnecting and, and disturbing. But nonetheless, that's what happened. Fast forward in terms of relationships in the biggest thing that I had lost through Neo Advaita. And I think the biggest tragedy of it was that it robbed me of being able to really be in relationships, especially intimate relationships, because I got to this point where how am I going to hold up a consistent sense of personhood in order to have that I-thou relationship that was really shocking to realize that I had possibly like irreparably damaged my ability to be in relationships. And that was very frightening. One thing I just want to interject here is somehow as you were telling that whole story, I was thinking of watching little girls having a tea party and feeding tea to their dolls or little boys driving trucks around the sandbox. And adults look at that and they think, well, isn't that cute? It's children having fun. They don't say to the kids, you know, you're not really serving tea to the dolls and those aren't really trucks and stuff like that. They recognize the validity or significance of what the kids are doing in the context of their level of maturity and their level of understanding. So I think as you evolve spiritually, a lot of the things that we see going on in the world seem like child's play or like silly dramas that people are taking far too seriously. But you have to acknowledge the level of experience that people are at and understand that for them, it's natural for them to see things that way and behave that way. Well said. That's where uh, the spiritual ego comes in. That's uh, the big pitfall that most people go through where it's, you know, whether or not you admit to yourself that you're having a spiritual ego, it's like the sense that like, I know the truth and others don't. And there's this almost like a condescension even a disdain towards humanity that's asleep in the matrix. Well, that's the Um, dark side of it, you see, because there is some validity to recognizing the absurdity of the way people sometimes behave and talk. But at the same time, it doesn't help you or them to consider yourself to be better than them just because you see it that way. There but for the grace of God go I, and maybe you were that way not long ago. And obviously, if you are puffing up your ego because you think you're better than them, then pride goeth before a fall. It'll have to get unpuffed at some point. Definitely. Yeah. And so everything seems petty now. Everything's drama. And it's like, well, yeah, I mean, life involves dramatic things and it involves challenges. But what I want to say was, I don't know if you've ever seen the show Westworld or if you've seen uh, I've heard about it, but I haven't seen it. What's the movie? Free Guy. Didn't see that one either. No. Yeah, it's not worth it. But Westworld is amazing. And I felt like it's really almost this allegory for awakening. It's based on this idea that there are these AI constructed robots who look completely human, but they're all on a script. Every day they wake up and it's Groundhog's Day. It's a script. So they don't have consciousness. And then some of them start to pop and have consciousness and recognize that it was all a script and that yeah. everyone else is scripted. There's also a real loneliness that would come with believing that about reality and seeing other people literally as these pre-programmed, almost like robotic characters. And that's something that I could say started to turn, you know, that line between mystic and psychotic 
where this kind of extreme derealization of people and even seeing people as some sort of robot that's scripted, that's where you get into some dark waters, which is kind of what happened for me. But I do want to fast forward to something that I think is a good part of the story. So I started to eventually experience like an intense depersonalization of the negative kind. And I'm really fascinated by when does the spiritual depersonalization shift into the other kind of depersonalization. And I was also shocked that it took that long on this path for it to shift into this depersonalization, but was just totally in like a dissociative fugue, even at a certain point, not completely. What I did was I um, decided to go to a Jeff Foster retreat. So it was Jeff Foster and Matt Lycotta, two people who I love. And I don't know what I was thinking would happen there, but what happened is not what I was thinking. It was called the great befriending. And when I got there, Jeff's entire outlook had radically changed and he wasn't teaching the self-effacement. He was now teaching that that was wrong and that what we really needed was self-compassion and befriending, you know, these inner children and these parts of us that what he had even taught himself, what he realized was Neo Advaita. And I was so angry. I was so angry with him because he was one of the ones that really ushered me into that absence of self that became reality for me. And now here he's saying that was wrong and we actually should have been befriending ourselves in learning self-compassion. And then Neo Advaita just completely splintered and obliterated and realized, saw it for what it was and what a grave mistake I had made. And if I had learned self-compassion instead, would I still have wanted that path was one question. Jeff was saying that. No, this is me saying that. You were saying that. Okay. My internal experience then was that. But what happens from there is that I'm realizing the extent to which like a death in me had occurred, which felt more like a soul loss. The theme of this retreat was grief. And so people are grieving like the death of their son or their loss of health. And I'm having this inner experience of like grieving the loss of myself. And it was just shocking. And it was that moment where it's almost like losing your religion, where on one hand, you don't want to admit that you were wrong and feeling embarrassed about it, but you don't want to face that reality. But you also are afraid to, you know, to lose it because that's your resource. Had you gone to the retreat thinking you were going to get more Neo Advaita? That's what I try to piece together is what did I expect was going to happen? But that's not what I expected. And this overwhelming unleashing of grief and all these flooding of emotions that clearly I had repressed to some extent. And this collective experience of relationship and grieving together with people. There was a woman in the corner who was Neo Advaita. And I just felt so sad for her because everybody was communing and making friends. And she's sitting in the corner, just so detached and watching and couldn't be a part of it. One thing I was thinking as you were talking was, I hope you're not beating yourself up over having gone through this phase and like telling yourself you wasted so many years or whatever, because we all go through different phases and we actually learn from them. And if you hadn't gone through this, you wouldn't be able to do what you're doing now, which I think is probably going to help a lot of people or is already helping a lot of people. Yeah, I went through a very long period of just like immense grief because I felt that I was irreparably. It reminds me of what I was going to go to next was this profound dilemma of 
do I want to go in the ways that you would talk about it in Neo Advaita? It's like, do you go back to sleep? Do you reawaken <laughs> yourself to be a person again? And of course, that's a failure. I remember Googling all this stuff and it's like, is there like a point of no return that you go through with like ego dissolution where, you know, you can't ever feel like a person again? You read out there that people are saying, yeah, you are past that point and all you can do is go forward into a a more permanent death or whatever they're referring to it as. You know, there's that thing in you invited that's like only the biggest spiritual warriors will go through with a final death. But what the dilemma was for me was really, do I want to go back into the matrix, which is what it felt like to have my humanity back? Or do I continue on on this other thing? I'm somehow reminded of Joseph Campbell's hero's journey. The hero goes through all this stuff, but then he ends up coming back and he has something that he wouldn't have had if he hadn't done the journey. So in a way, you, maybe you do come back into the matrix, but you come back into the matrix with a very different orientation, able to serve in exactly. the matrix and be of value to people. Yeah. And I think that's what's happening. But the thing with the hero's journey was that's laughable. That was laughable in, in my new invited days because <laughs> the hero of the stories of freaking myth what happens from there the part that became like really the spiritual emergency was where it was kind of feeling like realizing that and this is really dark but it's the truth it's like feeling like you've become a ghost there's this thing that's dead but not gone if you will and that becomes a pretty harrowing thing that's going on and also the derealization what I wanted to say, because I want to get to the like the return path was simultaneously, I had been trying to find out if there was a both and in non-duality, if there's a non-dual path that can support the like, human flourishing. And that's when I found Tim. And Tim was still in his phase of moving away from that. I don't know if you've read any of his books, but he has a book called Lucid Living where he's saying something very different from New Advaita, which New Advaita is like, it's all a dream, you know, get the hell out of there. Where Tim is like, well, it's a dream and you're a dream character, but enjoy this dream. It's amazing. Throw yourself into it. And I was just so taken by that. I tried to do that. And one of the pitfalls that I fell into a lot that I don't think people acknowledge very much is solipsism. And the fact that experiencing your life like a lucid dream can actually be empowering and open these opportunities. But the feeling is that the world is in you. You're the dreamer, the dream and the dream character. And so that was all liberating, but also led to this other pitfall of the sense that, okay, but now everything is not really real still. It's still a dream. But this is sort of leading me towards it felt like, you know, this reification, like I said, it's like, do I go back into a matrix? Like, I already know that this is not real, but I'm kind of becoming like desperate for a way to believe in reality again and to feel like there's a solidity to being a person into the world. So I was looking for a new paradigm that maybe perhaps could convince me of a reality where it's not all just an illusion or a dream and things are really real. So that's where people like Tim were starting to be so profoundly important for me because him and a few other people were kind of shifting away from that nihilistic view to one that actually affirms reality in a new paradigm. 
And I don't know if I should go into that at all, but I just wanted to share that that's been an important part of the process of, let's say, coming down the mountain and re-entering life with there being a new sense of reality to it, whether or not it's in a relative way. But for a lot of people, there's a challenge in coming out of Neo-Advaita and now, like, what do I move to now? How can I continue on? So that was sort of what was happening next was these new paradigms of reality that I was trying to explore. Did you ever look at the 10 ox herding pictures? I have. I've been shown that. Yeah. So in the end, the guy comes happily riding into town on the ox, coming in to bestow his wisdom on the people or something like that. Very, very profound. Very profound. And I think just about every spiritual teacher worth his or her salt has shown great compassion and concern and has not just sat there dryly. I'm talking about the great ones throughout history. Have not just sat there dryly telling everybody that they don't exist. They're concerned. They they want to alleviate people's suffering. They heal the sick and yeah. you know all kinds of stuff yeah. if they can do. And some of the modern ones, I mean, Ama, her organization just, I'm not sure exactly how they pulled this off, but they just built the are associated with the building of uh, the largest private hospital in India. And she's just over there in New Is Delhi. Is she the hugger? Is she the yeah, hugger? Yeah. Uh-huh. Oh. 2,600 bed specialty hospital in New, outside New Delhi. And there's a list as long as your arm of all the humanitarian things she does. And yet she understands the ultimate unmanifest quality or level of life perfectly well. But again, it's not only that. It's all the different strata of creation. And the the whole idea of Vyavaharika in um, Vedanta, the transactional level of reality, it's acknowledged that that is not the ultimate reality. Ultimately, it's not true, but it's given its proper recognition. And even if there is something ultimately illusory about the world, one behaves in the world as if there isn't. Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. Yeah. I don't personally see truth that way anymore. But this other shocking realization was like, this whole path of selflessness was entirely self-serving. This was my private inner experience of my liberation that didn't affect anyone else in a positive way. And then it was sort of like, what is the point of this? And why is this seen as the ultimate what is awakening if it's just for yourself? And like you said, realizing that a lot of these people and these self-appointed awakened people, A, are not awakened, but B, they're not showing empathy. They're not showing a whole lot of compassion. And in that sense, keep going blank. I'll help you out here. I was at the Science and Non-Duality Conference one time. I attended it every year for about a decade. And um, David Loy, Buddhist teacher, got up on the mic. And David's very concerned about environmental stuff and climate change and everything. And there was a teacher sitting up on stage and he was being rather neo-advaitish in the way he was presenting himself. And David said, what about climate change? He elaborated a bit more, but the teacher basically said, "Uh, the world is like a speck of dust. It doesn't really matter what happens to it. And if you think about that, we're talking about the miserable death and suffering of millions, if not billions of people. That is real enough for me. And again, no great spiritual teacher has ever ignored suffering. They've done their darndest to help alleviate it in whatever way they can, not only in some kind of spiritual philosophical sense by helping people get enlightened, but by 
feeding them and building hospitals and, you know, whatever can be done to alleviate suffering on any level. No teacher I would respect has ever just brushed it off as illusory. Let them eat cake. Right. And that's the other thing that really hit me was this new Advaita path of this liberation. It had nothing to do with, of course, being a better human because, you know, you're not a human, right? (laughs) No, well, that too, but you're not the notion of better. Like, you know, the teaching is always, this is not about becoming better. This is not for a person who wants to be a better dad or a better partner or, you know, whatever. And if you want that, you can leave now from the satsang, right? But when it hit me that, Shouldn't awakening or people that we revere as awakened, shouldn't they show some increase in ethical behavior, in moral character? But that's all laughable in New Advaita and laughable from the way that I saw it then. So it was really hard for me to re-embrace that. And like you said about the political things and the things that are challenging the world the most right now, just really seeming so insignificant. And I just had thought to myself, what they really seem to be suggesting is just the extinction of humanity. Yeah, that was really disturbing. Again, it's such a dry, nihilistic is a good word, take or spin on spirituality. Spirituality should be expressing my own opinion here, but spirituality should be a a blossoming of every facet of the human being, you know, the heart, the intellect, the senses, all these things should flourish as a result of spiritual awakening, just the way all aspects of a tree would flourish if the root were properly watered. Yes, very true. And that's where you realize how it's not holistic. If the way it's benefiting you is actually harming you psychologically, there's a problem there if there's that gap. And also the the piece about integration with Neo-Advaita is that there is no integration because there's no ego to integrate anything into and that becomes highly disturbing. Yeah. Okay, a few questions came in. This is from Martine Stevens in Belgium. Amazing work you do, but I think I speak for a lot of people when I say, how do you get to these insights in the first place? It seems that so many are longing for these first glimpses and never get there. As an emergency coach like yourself, do you have any useful tips? That's a great question. Actually, something I wanted to say was that I feel like why it came so easily for me is because I had this predisposition to depersonalization already. I don't know. I'm not sure that that's really the question that I personally would be focused on helping people with. It would probably be more about the other things that we can cultivate in life rather than trying to bring about a radical shift, things like self-compassion and kindness and healing wounds. But it is a good question. I'm not sure if I have a great answer. Longing for glimpses. I think if a person finds an effective spiritual practice and sticks to it, as well as living a well-rounded life, as well as cultivating compassion and friendliness and ethics and, and all these things, glimpses will come along when they come along. And in terms of like flashy experiences, some people are just wired to have flashy experiences. It, it doesn't mean they're more spiritually evolved than people who aren't having them. I went through a phase where I was a little envious of people who were having these great flashy experiences. Ramana would tell you, if you read Ramana, that that which comes and goes is not ultimately real. So flashy experiences come and go. And enlightenment is not like a permanent LSD trip or something. Yeah, no, that's very true. Actually, (laughs) I just thought of something in response to this, which is that 
I'm not interested in helping people have these ego death experiences. But what I am interested in is how things like radical compassion opens your heart to a sense of interconnection so that it becomes this awakening to being parts of a greater whole where there's this non-dual aspect in which we're both separate, but also one. And it becomes very much about a shared humanity. There's a Tibetan quote, which I'll pop in here, which is, don't mistake understanding for realization. Don't mistake realization for liberation. So I think a lot of these people in the Neo-Advaita world have gone to their satsangs and read their books and all that stuff and have just cultured this. They've hypnotized or brainwashed themselves with this understanding, which they are mistaking for realization. It's not realization. And this whole no-self business... That's not what it's about. Here's another question. This is a question about Sri Aurobindo, whom you mentioned on your website in some Um, article. He just wants to know when you became aware of his teachings and what impact did it have on you? Wow, that's such an amazing question. This is from Um, David in Hamilton, Ontario. Amazing question. I became aware of him in the last few years. And what he's actually helped me do is to He talks about the differences between spiritual reductionism, where you reduce all form to emptiness, as compared to material reductionism, where, you know, you deny the spirit in in favor of material. What he talks about is this revolt of spirit against matter. And so he really opened up for me. And he's I think he has a bit of an evolutionary perspective on non-duality, but The thing that I'm reading about him now, he's pretty like dense. I find I have to read him in little chunks, but he talks about the problem of spiritual perfectionism and how we're projecting our own ideals of perfection onto God. But I would say I recommend him very, very much. He's really helped me uh, to get a, a new sense of reality and significance to it and also to see some of the follies of these either or paths. Good. This is an interesting question from Lucas Koenig. Why is there so much consistency between what Neo-Advaita teachers experience? If there is nothing to their ontology, why is this no self-experience realized by so many? I also really like that question. I know a lot of people say if emptiness is not the ultimate truth or if the self doesn't exist, then why did all the sages? It's like, because the sages said so, it has to be the ultimate truth. And I think that people throughout history have been having an experience. I think that what does happen, though, is that people interpret it in different ways. And so I think we're having an experience that's shared, but that as time progresses and you know we evolve and have new understandings, I think that we're starting to see that the assumptions that there is no self or the assumption that reality doesn't exist is an interpretation of that experience. So that's been a pretty big thing for me. So I think people are having the same experience that is being interpreted in different ways. And of course, all the Neo-Advaita teachers, they're all singing in the same choir. So they, they echo and reinforce each other. But traditionally, there's been two orientations to the ultimate truth. One is you could call Shunyavada, which is emptiness teaching. And the other is Purnavada, which is fullness. And they're really referring to the same thing and just looking at it from different angles. It's empty in the sense that it doesn't contain concrete things, 
but it's full in the sense that it contains the potentiality for all things which manifest from it. I kind of prefer to look at it that way, personally. And maybe the teaching that you align yourself with is going to influence the quality of your realization. And if you align with the emptiness thing, there will be a more dispassionate or nihilistic orientation. Whereas if you align with the fullness thing, there might be more of a an orientation where you utilize the fullness that you gain to throw yourself into life. As I said, I think you said earlier, I always reference that book in the 23rd Psalm, my cup runneth over. When the cup is full, it starts to run over and provide nourishment for other people. Yeah. One thing I did want to follow this up with is that I just remembered something else that feels true. The idea of being told what to conclude from the experience that you're being guided into. So Advaita is telling you, you don't exist, and this is how you're going to realize it. So once you have that experience, you're already told what you're supposed to believe from that. So it just confirms that story. So what I wondered is, if I hadn't already been told that that's what it meant, would I have drawn the same conclusion or would I have just concluded that there's a spaciousness that you can expand that makes your mind quiet and is opening you up to a, a greater reality? There's something. Of yeah, that's a really good point. It's a really good point. And actually, without proper understanding, the experience of awakening can actually be a source of confusion and fear. Look at Suzanne Siegel's book, Collision with the Infinite. You probably read yeah. that. I can think of many other examples, or even this friend of mine that I referenced earlier, who's going through this beautiful awakening. She's gone through a lot of fear. And, you know, at one point she was sitting there gripping the coffee table because she felt Mm -hmm. like she was just going to zoom out into vastness and not come back. But then once she got through the fear phase, she realizes that she can be the vastness and also be Kim. Her name happens to be Kim, who happens, who's a mother and who has a job and likes to do this. But with the wrong understanding or with without some degree of guidance, like in Suzanne's case, Suzanne Siegel, she went on for a decade in a state of great fear because she was misinterpreting the shift she had undergone. And it wasn't until she got together with Jean Klein that he kind of put things into yeah. place. And then she began to enjoy what had happened. Right, right. Something that I, I guess I'll say, would I have come to feel and wondered if I had been taught within a framework that you're going to have this ego dissolution experience, but that's not the final stage. That's a stage to see conditioning for what it is and to see the ways that you've been conditioned to believe in these limitations about you that are not actually real. They came from beliefs people instilled in you, but that it's a process of rebirth. It's not a, you know, die and be dead before you're dead. Like, why the hell would you even live? Well, there is the whole dying to live. So if we were to reframe it for those who relate to this as important or safer, that perhaps that paradigm for people who do want to have this transcendent or consciousness expansion, that you don't teach ego death as a final stage. You teach it with, of course, there should be some type of preparation. The same with psychedelics, I would say. There's some preparation and then... I'm not sure exactly how one would induce the dissolution experience, but telling people that after this is what's most important is how you then, how that then transforms you being able to self-author a person that sense of self that feels more authentic, 
but that also, as you were saying, you're going to know that to be a part of what you are rather than the whole of what you are. And with that, you're going to be able to actualize potential for good in the world. And so I think if that had been framed that way to me, things would have been dramatically different and probably would have avoided the devastation that I went through. Yeah. I mean, the word death has a negative connotation, obviously. I I hate Um, that word. And uh, I mean, the wave, when it settles down into the ocean temporarily, does it die or does it gain the possibility of even greater momentum to become a bigger wave? I would like to suggest that. And obviously, a shallow pond can only rise up in ripples. It can't rise up into big waves, but an ocean can rise up into huge waves without even stirring up any mud at the bottom. So I think that gaining or attaining one's oceanhood, it's not a death. It's just a realization of the larger aspect of one's nature, you could say. But then the individual aspect of one's nature, the wave aspect, can actually be much more than it can without that grounding in the ocean. Exactly. And that's what I've come to experience is that you tap into the greater that you also are an expression of. So it's like that sense of being the ocean almost as a wave, the aspect of that that I found in the Advaita, it's like, you know, you're not the wave, you're the depth of the ocean and become that and don't be a wave. What I see an ocean without waves? I guess it's a pond. So the experience now that's been so profound, like cathartic and helpful is I imagine there's these waves, the waves are living, thinking that they're separate and isolated the way that we do. And then waking up to we're two expressions of this whole ocean and the way that that brings you together in this incredible relationship of, you know, we're separate, but we're also one. And that both and, that's the glorious both and. By the way, that was Carl Jung who said that. I did not make that up. Nice. I didn't know that. Can't sue you because he's dead. That's true. So, yeah, it becomes a a lot more of that, like you're saying, tap into the greater whole. Ken Wilber has a great quote where he said, it's plugging the self into something greater. It's not a subtraction. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's good to keep coming back to this point again and again from different angles because... In my own experience, it takes repeated exposure to an idea for it to really go deep. You don't just hear something once and say, okay, got it done. You just keep contemplating it at deeper and deeper levels, and then it really becomes part of your makeup. Yeah. Here's a question from David Spector in Maine. Jessica said she did some meditation. What kind of meditation? The usual breathing awareness or something else like thought awareness, Buddhism, or transcendental meditation? How many minutes a day? It wasn't daily. I think it was the combination of like the mindfulness type of maybe Vipassana insight meditation that you kind of step back as the awareness where you become aware of the contents of your mind. But the idea being that you're not the thoughts, you're the awareness that's aware. So that was one. The other, one of the things that actually I remember being a light bulb moment was in a meditation and I don't remember who it was or what kind of meditation it was, but it was really that notion of the gaps between things and asking of this question, what is the space that thoughts arise from and go back into? And that clicked something that like, that's what you really are. So it was that. And then I don't know, at a certain point, I don't even know what I was doing, but it was just go dropping into this dissolution. And at the most extreme, it was 
I think there's different words for how people experience that, but just this even dissolution of your entire physicality. I don't know how to tell people exactly how that happened. It just was something that happened. I don't know if that helps, but now I'm very much a proponent of very somatic embodied types of meditation. Like what? Well, I'm trying to think of people who I would suggest. I actually don't really meditate much anymore because it's actually kind of triggering of the depersonalization. But there is a woman named Kristen Neff who does self-compassion meditations. And then you could even say body scans, I think are great. You can also look up just like embodied meditation, somatic meditations, I would suggest, but I don't have particular people to recommend. Okay. One of the questioners earlier alluded to a spiritual emergency consultation thing that you do. What's what's that about? Well, I, that's not exactly what I do. I am certified to facilitate peer support groups. So what I'm wanting to start offering. Who certified you? Emma, Emma Bragdon. Oh, good. Whom I've interviewed. Yes. Yeah, IMHU. So what I want to start offering is just that is a support, like a support community and also offer peer support groups for people that have gone through this, especially Neo-Advaita. And the thing that I really want to get across is just how widespread and severe the harm from Neo-Advaita is. Like I know that it's thousands of people and we've all gone through the same pitfalls and feel totally alone and, and, you know, feel like so much has been damaged by it. The people realizing that other people have been through it is just such a big comfort and the support group aspect. When I realized that spiritual emergency support groups existed, it was really a a huge part of my moving on process. But so, yeah, just to to be that. So to join a support group where people just purely sharing and listening. But I don't have that set up yet, but I would appreciate people who are interested messaging me through my website to let me know if that is something that interests you. Okay, good. Some guy got in touch with me recently and said he had done a real lot of intense meditation and it really destabilized him. Now he felt like he was on some permanent LSD trip, although he was able to type coherent messages to me. I often hear from people who are in need of help because of some unexpected kundalini awakening that they don't know how to deal with and stuff. So is that in your wheelhouse? Funny that you ask with Kundalini. I've um, been collaborating with a woman, Kate West, and she runs a support community for Kundalini Awakenings called When Lightning Strikes. So if you're going through that type of emergency, please look that up. It's an amazing platform. What was the first thing that you asked before the Kundalini? Just that he did a lot of intense meditation and it's really destabilized him and made him feel like he's on a permanent acid trip. So what I actually had wanted to have a chance to mention is that in discovering all these people who are starting to speak up about the dangers of Neo-Advaita, there's a lot of therapists that are actually starting to speak on YouTube because they're having clients come that are so confused and gone through all of this harm from Neo-Advaita. And they're starting to talk about why it's so dangerous and the different components of that. And so one part of what I've been doing is reaching out to those people and seeing how perhaps in some type of online community that we could collaborate and then also have people have access to those specific types of therapists. Here's a question we should have answered in the beginning. And I think I might take a quick crack at it at this one and let you embellish. 
Laura Peters in Santa Fe, New Mexico. What is Neo-Advaita? I'm not familiar with it. And my quick answer would be that Advaita means not to. It's a Sanskrit word. And there's a tradition in India that is represented by that term called Advaita Vedanta. Anta means end. Vedanta means the end of the Veda. So the non-dual realization is considered to be the end of spiritual development or the pinnacle of it. It's an ancient tradition, and there's a lot of knowledge and a lot of sophistication, a lot of safeguards and all kinds of good stuff. But neo means new. And so neo-advaita refers to contemporary people who are cherry-picking bits from this tradition and setting themselves up as teachers, perhaps without the necessary maturity of experience and understanding to teach people in a balanced, holistic way and only do them good without causing them harm. That'd be my answer. That's well said. And I would just add to that, that I think the general messages that you hear from the Advaita is things like there's no doer, there's nothing to do, there's nothing to say, there's nobody who's speaking these words, and I'm speaking them to no one, to the apparent Rick and the apparent Jessica. But it is really, it's that, that the self doesn't exist, nothing's really real, and therefore there's nothing to do. It's, it's a very, very partial, much- partial teaching. And- if you study genuine Advaita, you hear it differently. Of course, yeah. I'm not sure if I should say this or not, but I think I'm going to. If you do want to understand and get a sense of what Neo-Advaita is, you can Google something called the Nothing Conference, and that should really give you a crash course in what it is. I hadn't heard of it, but you told me about it, and I looked at it just a little while before we started today. And I've interviewed half the people who participated in that conference, (laughs) and they're all over the map. If we were to create a spectrum of extreme to not so bad, they're all over the map. And, you know, I know some of those people personally, and I wouldn't even think of them as neo-advaita, but I guess they were invited to participate in the conference. My sense is that, and this is my personal opinion, that somebody that would choose to speak on behalf of that conference, that what they've described is that the nothing conference is there to spread the non-duality message. The non-duality message is not nothing. That's the utter nihilistic version of it. And I feel like to put that out there as suggesting that is very misleading and and unhealthy. I wouldn't have spoken at it, but if I had been invited and did speak, I would have given them a hard time and disrupted the conference. (laughs) I absolutely would have as well. (laughs) Here's a question from Ajay Maharaj in Canada. Loved your non-duality talk with Tim Freak, and a lot of what you spoke about resonated deeply. From your perspective, how do we incorporate love in our lives from a non-dual perspective while embracing our humanness? It's beautiful and interesting that there would be a way to experience love and not embrace your humanness. And I think that that's where, like Neo-Advaita, it was very much about impersonal love, but there wasn't uh, emphasis on love and action or compassionate love relationships. So what I've actually felt is that the love that arises from this both and non-duality, which is the sense that we're both separate and we're one and we're two expressions of the universe in, in the way I see it now, evolved expressions of the universe. It brings in this sense of complete benevolence and the wishing well for others. Heartbreak is like breaking your heart open, but it really requires that sense of, of relationship to be there where there's a sense of intimacy and a shared common humanity. So my experience of non-duality now is very much based on relationship. 
I don't always remember if it's codependent origination or interdependent origination in Buddhism, but it's much more of that, that all polarities are a relationship that one doesn't arise without the other. And this intimacy, like I said, from being both separate and one that has that shared being and that shared humanity. And I found that the love that comes from me there is, you know, walking down the street and sensing that shared suffering that we go through on this human journey and feeling just immense compassion for that and for myself as well. And that shared experience starts to feel like maybe not you would say love, but compassion, which has some element of love in it. Yeah. You were saying a little earlier about how we're one and we're also individuals. On some level, you and I, are we're one and everything is one. And yet you're in Israel and I'm here and Irene's over there. And like the ocean, it's one ocean and there's individual waves. My friend Kim, whom I mentioned earlier, she's been going through a phase where everything is seen as the self. It's like the oneness, self with a capital S, meaning the oneness level of life walking down the street, everything is seen as the self. And she spends much of her day weeping because the beauty is just so much and it keeps melting her heart. You know, she'll meet some person that is like in a wheelchair and has certain handicaps and everything else. And it'll just evoke this weeping. It's like more love than her heart can hold. And so her heart has to melt and expand even more in order to hold it. And it just keeps growing and growing and growing. Contrast that with the dryness of neo-advaita, you are not a person and I'm not a person, all that business, where there seems to be very little heart involved. Radically different. And like what I've experienced since then with this new way is just that it's like your heart is bursting with that compassion and that just profound sense of one of my friends and I talk about is like the ecstasy and agony of living and that we're all doing that. It's a huge heart awakening. As definitely what that is. But for me, it's had to come from bringing back that I-thou relationship that was lost in Neo-Advaita, where we can be one, and I would say one as two. So it's more of this sense of like a oneness of multiplicity that I didn't coin that term. Someone else did. I don't remember who. Carl Young? I actually think it was Jason Schulman. I've interviewed him. Good person to look up. He's wonderful. And Tim uses the phrase individual. You know, it's just kind of like that. Yeah. I didn't know if I I wanted to bring in those terms, but yes, it is that sense of unividuality, which I think is a great word. And also the term uniduality is really what I like to use because it is one and two and it can only be, they can only arise together. And then that unividuality where you're saying like you can walk around what I had experienced for a time where it's like, I look out and see everyone as myself did turn into a bit of solipsism and the sense that they're all me, but they're not them. And so now it's that. Uh, they're all me, but they are them. Exactly. <laughs> that you're you and I'm me, but I'm you and you're me, you know, and yeah. actually something I should mention that has been a big part of this for me. And I think the most profound sense of oneness and interconnection is eye gazing. And Tim Freak does that as a way to experience individuality and you know, you also find eye gazing events around there. But the sense of when you look into someone's eyes and you recognize that you're both expressions of the same thing looking back at itself. And so you see that oneness in the other person's eyes, but it's one thing that you both are kind of looking at itself. 
I think that that's actually a really good way. It actually does bring a lot of people to a uni-dual awakening rather than a non-dual awakening. Nice. I'm reminded of the phrase, individual love is concentrated universal love. So it's almost like when I was a kid, I used to sometimes get a magnifying glass and try to light something on fire with the sun. I hope it wasn't an insect. No, no, not insect, like a leaf or something. Yeah, try to get something to burn. You know, you're concentrating the sunlight. So we're like magnifying glasses in a way through which the universal love can focus even more precisely and manifestly. That's a really good way to put it. And I will say, just because I think it can be so helpful for people, is Tim Freak does have an online community called the ICU, International Community of Unividuals. A lot of people are part of that who have been trying to move away from things like Neo-Advaita, where the relationship is lost and experience it in, in this new way, in this uni-duality. I think it can be very helpful. So great to look that up. One thing I was meaning to ask you earlier, and it's a little out of context now, but I'd still like to ask you, now because of what you're doing, you're getting feedback from people all over the world who have been through Neo-Advaita, or maybe in some cases are still in it. I don't want to call them horror stories, but in case people might think that you're an isolated case, what kind of things are people experiencing? And what is causing them to sort of wake up to the realization that maybe something is wrong with the picture? Yeah. That's actually really important. Um, And I've been actually compiling on my website an archive of testimonials that people have shared because I did want to say that what I'm sharing is not just unique to me or some anomaly or something went wrong. That path is laden with pitfalls that I would almost say most people will fall into. And you can simply Google Neo Advaita in, in forums all across the internet, Reddit, Quora, and just in comments feeds on YouTube videos, so many people are talking about this. They can't be in relationships anymore. They can't make themselves die. So they want to commit suicide that it's just ruined their lives. And it's just completely confused them about what's real and what's not real. And I had actually thought of maybe reading a quote from one of these. I did share the one about the dad and people can go to your website and read more, but, but read it. Hey, you know, go uh-huh. ahead and look that up. Oh, here we go. So yeah, what feels really important is to make it really clear that this is a really widespread thing and that it's really severe. A lot of people are talking about it leading to wanting to commit suicide. And part of what I want to do is really kind of a plea to the spiritual community to get this and to come together to spread awareness and see if there's anything we can do. But There's people here saying the toxic nature of the teachings has taken me a lifetime to undo, created more suffering that basically ruined my life, convinced I had to die. And when I couldn't, uh, at times I felt like a physical death would put an end to the merry-go-round of madness, became the source of most of my suffering in the end, apathy and disassociation. This person talking about how he realized that the people in the Neo-Advaita community with him were just wiped of personality deadening of the mind, erasing my personality. This one's really profound. And this was my experience. I was suffering, trying not to suffer. Life went from blooming to dull and meaningless, a lot of nihilism. But if you want to see more of that, there's so many of these coming out that I'm also encouraging anybody listening who might have 
an experience like that, if you would like to add it to that, because it really does help people. If you want to send me a message with can be an anonymous testimonial that I can add there. So please feel free to, to do that. Which they can do through your website. Yeah. There's right. a, a contact form, you know. Yeah. And I'll be linking to your website story. on your page on BatGap. Here's a question that came in from Lakshmi in India. Sometimes I experience an explosion of awareness, which becomes difficult to bear. I feel yeah. bored of being in this state of void stillness, and I constantly try to distract myself, not knowing how to handle it, like playing hide and seek. How do I get across this? A lot of people talked about the hide and seek, but it sounds like you're saying that you're lost in that oneness or void. I experienced that. I, it is a difficult thing. I think that you do need to seek out integration paths and coming back into the body and things that will bring you more to that both and that there is that. But what I realized is that I'd become so spacious and I was working with someone and they said, yeah, you became so spacious, but it's about being spacious and contained that we need containment. And to be honest, that can often come with working with a therapist. And there are many therapists that specialize in these very things like spiritual emergence and crisis coaches. I'd say Lakshmi's experience is good, but obviously you're not finished, Lakshmi. And we need to live in boundaries, but we also can enjoy boundlessness. And the name of the game is to have boundless and boundaries at the same time. Then the boundaries are no longer a prison cell. They're no longer constricting. We have inner freedom and great contentment as a result of that freedom, but we're able to focus sharply in whatever our life requires. You know, don't try to blot out the stillness. You say you, you try to distract yourself because it becomes boring. That's just a phase. It's the source of great fulfillment. Brahman is referred to as ananda, you know, uh, bliss. So we want to live it, but we want to live it in an integrated way so that it is actually an asset. It enhances our ability to function within the boundaries of life. Yeah, And some kind of spiritual practice, or like Jessica said, some grounding, integrating stuff. I mean, if you have kids, they'll keep you busy. I did some specific work that I was doing with a somatic therapist, I think can be very helpful to help move between the boundless and the physical and the formless. And like we said, to be able to have both at the same time. Yeah, the glorious both and. Yeah. All righty. Well, we've pretty much covered it i think is there anything that you know 10 minutes after we hang up you're going to think oh my god i should have said this i don't know yet yeah we'll I'll email wait. you call me I back did. yeah <laughs> gotta get back on i feel like you were very helpful in bringing out some of the things that i was worried wouldn't come out this feels complete to me thanks well let's stay in touch i'd like to actually have nice. some conversations with you in the coming week or so. If you feel like it, I could call you up on WhatsApp and while I'm walking yeah. in the park and we could unpack what we've talked yeah. about here today. And, you know, there's a few other things we want to explore, I think. So I'll be in touch and we'll, we'll do Great. that. Great. So, so thanks to those who've been listening or watching as always, we really appreciate your um, participation. If you like being on the live calls and being able to ask questions, then on the upcoming interviews page on BatGap, you'll see a, a little thing on the right-hand column that you can click on to set a reminder for yourself in Gmail or Outlook or whatever you use to remind you of when the live call is going to be because they're at different times every week. 
And also check out the other menus on the site while you're at it. Sign up for the email notification if you like, or do that in YouTube. If you sign up to be notified in YouTube, you want to subscribe, but you also want to hit the little bell that pops up because then they really notify you of everything when it comes up. All right. So thanks again. Thank Thank you, you, Jessica. For everyone who's listening. Yeah. Really glad that um, Tim brought you to my attention that we've gotten to know each other. Me too. All right. Bye, everybody. Bye.